0: Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshesheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Hey friends, welcome back to part two with Betsy Beiler. Betsy is a mental health therapist. She's also an addiction counselor. She also trains therapists on how to deal with uh, clients with addictions and substance use disorder. And in the last episode, Betsy shared her own personal journey of addiction and recovery and how she got involved in addiction counseling and therapy. She also shared her secret to dealing with teens who struggle with addictions and successful ways to treat them. So in this episode, we are gonna be talking about assessments, what that is, what happens when someone comes in for treatment. We're gonna be talking about the difference between substance use disorder assessment and treatment versus a mental health assessment. We're gonna talk about aftercare, co-occurring disorders, what in the world is that all about? And she's gonna give us some advice for people struggling with family members who are dealing with addictions. Betsy, at the end of episode one, you shared some of your strategies for dealing with young people and teens struggling with addictions. In lieu of that conversation, give us some words of wisdom, some advice for parents, for moms and dads who are dealing with kids who are struggling. So
1: when I ran the agency, one of the calls The most common call we would get outside of normal, I need an assessment, I need treatment, I need mental health help, et cetera, was from parents of adult children. And Mm -hmm. the thing about they would call and they are desperate and they are looking for the answer. And my response was always, why don't you just come in and talk to me or talk to one of my counselors? Because in that moment, I feel like parents just need somebody to be a human And to just talk to them. And as a mom, I get that. That I, thankfully, my children did not get the addiction gene. They're not interested. And I'm incredibly grateful. That's not to say, of course, that we didn't have parenting struggles. And both of my girls are grown. And that doesn't mean that I don't parent them. Because I do in certain ways. But the boundaries are different. And so when I talk to parents, oftentimes it's assessing where they are and what they are interested in knowing about the kid. They want to know that how far down the path are we? What kind of treatment would the kid yeah. need? And I want to share that with them so that they know that when they feel like their adult child or their kid is ready for treatment, this is where you go, this is what you do. Yeah. But once you know that, that you set that information to the side because chances are when they're ready for their kid to get, get sober, that's not when the kid's ready. And so Mm -hmm. until that time, it really is about self-preservation and it is a very hard conversation because they don't understand that they have to live their life their way in their own fullness, regardless of what Mm -hmm. their child does. And as parents that goes against everything that we are, but that is the reality that they have. That's the reality that they have to just live and they have to minimize the damage to their own life from their loved one who's using. And that's a really hard conversation because the cost feels really high because everything we do as parents from the moment our kids are born until the day we die is about preventing our kids death every single thing we do it's don't jump on the bed you might fall break your neck and don't go outside with a wet head you might catch a cold and right like every single thing we do is about protecting their life and so to to make boundaries to make decisions where the kid might decide they're not going to speak to you or they're going to take off that feels like leading them down the path where they're going to die. And it is terrifying. What I have to talk with parents about is, yes, it's terrifying and not, but, and you still have to live your life anyway, because doing these other things isn't going to make them get sober because that's not how this works when addiction has set in and the changes have taken taken place in the brain that we know happen as a as a result of addiction it's no longer just your kid that's in this the addiction has its own power and its own trajectory and yes your yeah. kid can recover we do recover there isn't a magic thing though and If you are having things stolen or having to cover up things or taking care of grandchildren or whatever the case may be, there are there are things that you will have to do or people will have to do as as a parent that they have to decide where their line is because the addiction is going to do what it's going to do until that person can get them get the addiction can arrest what's happening. In their body mm-hmm. and in their brain. And sometimes that's through treatment and sometimes it's not. And when I talk with parents, it really is trying to help them hold both things true. That yes, yeah. I want to protect my child and I need to live my life in the meantime because my suffering isn't going to change what they do. Because addiction is not about whether you someone loves you enough. If love was enough to get people sober, people would get sober. And it doesn't work that way. And I wish it did, but it doesn't. There are lots of folks (laughs) who I have heard over and over and over who are so confused at their own behavior about how they love their family and love their children and love whomever and they can't stop using. It's hard to believe when you're on the other side because the devastation in the wake of addiction is so complete that it can be so hard to accept that. And so for me, it is yeah. trying to help parents keep a door open It under certain circumstances. Mm. The door can be open to your adult child, but here are the things where you will get involved and anything outside of that, you're not going to. And what I tell people is, look, I'm not going to tell you where to draw the line because wherever you draw right. it, you need to be able to sleep at night. And I'm not going to ask you to draw a line that you're not ready to draw. I do want you to know that that line may be coming. And so you have to be aware of your own boundaries and be able to make the choices. So if that means that you're still willing to let your kid come live with you, that's up to you. There may come a point where you can't allow that anymore. And that's sort of a we take this one step at a time. I can tell them that letting their kid roll over them all the time is not helping their kid. It's not changing the director, the direction of the addiction. It's not doing that at all because that's not what's at play here. Uh, The addiction is just using resources to get its way. And you can either get used up in that process or you can protect the resources so that the universe willing when the kid's ready
0: You still have those resources. Hmm. Gosh, that was so much. (laughs) I love what you just said. It reminds me of just kind of this grace and truth concept, you know, where, where we have to look at both. And I love that. I know years ago, you know, my brother died of his addiction and we went through just all the boundaries and the tough love and everything. And I didn't know any different. I was just like, you just need to kick him out. And, you know, we just didn't know, you know, and And just coming alongside people is so huge and allowing them to kind of do what they can live with, particularly as parents, is enormous. You know, now looking back, I would never tell a mom to do this whole tough love, but I would kind of do really what you're saying is just very, very much, you know, I talked to a mom one time and and it was kind of the same thing where it was more like I'm concerned for you and I'd love to see you maybe get some help and here's some meetings for yourself, but you need to do what you can live with. And in the end, it felt like it made her move more towards that choice of protecting herself and, and ultimately not letting the adult children back in because someone didn't tell her what she had to do, you know, that she had to do something that was completely counterintuitive to the mother nature, you know. And I think that's the key
1: because the panic that is in us about our kids is that no one else understands. You don't understand my boy. You don't understand my girl. You don't understand us. No, I don't. Mm -hmm. And I want you to tell me the situation and let's, let's work on it and see, can you have this one small boundary? This seems to be the biggest thing that makes your life that brings the crazy of addiction into your life. How can we keep the crazy mm. out of that and trying to help yeah. them see that just even these small boundaries, like let's make sure you're getting sleep. Let's make sure that you don't have things around that you care about that could get stolen because that's super normal when people are using to steal things. Cause I used to do it too. And what right. about getting, making sure you can get to work so you're not getting called out all the time. So it's just finding a way to how do you still love and have a door open, whatever mm-hmm. you're willing to do, and then protect those parts. Because ultimately they do. When when parents do that, when they're able to take that approach, they do end up coming up with their own boundaries. Yeah. Even though I've never suggested it. Because they're like, okay, I can't put up with this behavior anymore. So here's what I'm going to mm-hmm. do. And it's not about tough love. That is not a phrase... You know, it is a phrase that that used to happen, right? People used to say that all the time. Yeah. But that's not what it is. This is a logical consequence to if you're going to do this and you're going to disrupt the house and nobody can get any sleep and go to work like then I can't have you here. You know, that's not right. about that's not about tough love. That's that's just logical. And there are boundaries of if you want to talk, here's when I need you to contact me. Here's when I'm going to be available for you. And always the if you're ready to go to treatment. I have done the legwork. I know exactly where to take you and what to do. And I have the information. So whenever you're ready, it doesn't matter when it is, you call me and I'll make it happen. And then you set it aside and you don't harp on it. You don't bring it up and you don't remind them because they know already. But they know also that you are ultimately, when they have that moment of, I can't live like this, they know that mom or dad or aunt or uncle, whoever, this person in my life knows how to help me. I will call them. And it is a powerful thing for them to know that you have their back, but you're not harping on them and going to make them do. an I told you so moment. I mean, it, it's just a totally different kind of more hands off, but yeah. In support, the person knows you're there. And I just mm-hmm. think that you get farther and, You know, that our whole goal here is that people do recover people who have far more in-depth youth stories that, you know, I have a colleague who is a therapist and he overdosed in jail five different times Mm. and his parents had taken out a life insurance policy to help pay for his funeral because they just were convinced that he was going to die. And of course he, he was that that's where it was headed and he was so out of control. And now he's a master's level therapist working with substance use (laughs) and a clinical supervisor leading other people. And this was the man that he was. And now he's has a partner and a son and they don't have to worry about paying for his funeral, but and the truth is we do recover it's just that we have to live our lives in the meantime and provide the support that we are able to that is always leading in the direction of you can you
0: can do this i believe in you and i'm here when you're ready yeah i would like to just touch on just treatment assessment If I was, let's say, bringing my kid in for treatment, what would I expect? What would I, at the very least, like, what would I want to see in a treatment center? And what would I want to maybe happen that first day?
1: For a parent, uh, you know, whether, so we're assuming here it's probably an adult child. Um, Adolescent treatment is, is a bit different. But if we're talking about an adult child here... So when you go to a treatment center, the very first thing that has to happen is there is an assessment. And we use that word a lot. And Mm -hmm. it can mean a lot of things. And so that can be sort of confusing. But the initial assessment or screening is, does this person need to go to detox? Do they need to be in a residential facility where they live there for 30, 45 days, whatever? Or are they going to do outpatient therapy? But the very initial thing that we're determining is, Uh, can they do any time sober at all or do they need to go to detox? Mm -hmm. And so that's our first thing. And we're also assessing for risk in terms of like alcohol withdrawal can kill you. It's extremely deadly. Yeah. And if that's the situation, we need to to talk about that. Opiate withdrawal isn't necessarily deadly, but it is the worst of the withdrawals. It is the most painful. It is the longest. It is hands down like you. It makes you want to die in a way that I don't even know how disgusting as well. (laughs) Yeah. And and I don't know that people can truly grasp
0: how bad it is
1: and what we will do as humans to make the pain stop. Mm -hmm. So while opiate withdrawal can be done outside of a, a structured setting, it doesn't often stick because it's it's prolonged. This isn't like you have a hangover for a day or maybe two and then you're fine. This is, it's complex. And so if someone can do opiate withdrawal on their own, okay, I have not seen a lot of that uh, in an outpatient Mm -hmm. setting. And so I think that having a program that's prepared to deal with opiates and opiate withdrawal or heroin and heroin withdrawal. So we're talking about Uh, medication assisted treatment whether it's naltrexone or suboxone or methadone because that's that's going to be the big battle of in the beginning for any addict or alcoholic is how do we handle the physical withdrawal and craving so when they do their assessment like that's our first thing once we determine where they're at and what they need then we determine all right what's the extent of this use how long has it been happening how entrenched are they in that life and that helps dictate what level of treatment in terms of is it a once a week group that they need and an individual counselor or do they need to be there multiple days a week do they need to be there every day but they can go home at night do they need to be overnight but not necessarily in a medical facility and so it's, it's all these different things. And that's the counselor's job. Like you don't have to determine that as the parent, but that is the counselor's job. And you want the treatment center or the treatment person, whoever's doing the assessment, to know those resources and to know how to get your kid into them and to know how the funding works. Because yeah. that is the key is who's going to pay for it. And yeah. that can often get in the way of knowing what to do and so there are people who know those things and it's just a matter of getting in touch with them like who can explain that to me how do we find funding how do i advocate with my insurance company what can we do to try to make sure that that stuff's covered and so a counselor should be able to tell you why they're making the recommendation they're making why this person needs to go to this level of treatment And for us, there's four levels of treatment. There's, you know, it's a one, two, three, and four if we're using a specific criteria that's set out by the American Society of Addiction Medicine. The fourth level is like medical detox. Third being residential and inpatient. Second is day treatment. And then the first level is outpatient. And so a counselor should be able to give you a very clear... Here's why I make this recommendation. This is why this person needs level four, level three, two, one, et cetera. It's not just arbitrary. We're not just making these choices. Uh, We want to make sure that they're appropriate. And an inpatient treatment, so in a residential center where someone's going to be there for 30 or 45 days, if they don't fit, if they're not the right level, they're not going to make it. They either need to go back to detox or they need to drop down because they're just not in the same place as the other clients. And that makes a difference. And so we really want to have the responsivity, like we want everything to be in the right place for the person and then step down from there to finishing that to going to the next level down, whether it's day treatment or intensive outpatient or aftercare or what have you. And so all of that is happening in the counselor's office and with the counselors who are on staff. And a lot of times they'll have staff meetings where they talk about people and they discuss treatment protocols and like, if they're going to be on medication assisted treatment, like what's the dosage of that. And there's, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that is happening to make treatment work. But That's the first step for anybody is to get an assessment with someone who can do it. So a substance use assessment, and that's going to be different than, say, a mental health assessment. A mental health assessment should ask about substance use. And if they find it, they should be referring for a substance use assessment. And that's just like going to a specialist, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, Where you are like, oh, these things in your blood came up kind of funny. Let's go to endocrinology so they can look at this or whatever, whatever the the situation is. So that's kind of what happens. Um, And then within each treatment level, there are different things that happen. Typically, there's individual sessions and group sessions and individual work that the person will do packets and worksheets and reading and things like that, as well as just learning how to do a day where they're getting sleep and eating decent food and taking care of themselves and socializing with others and getting away from the peer group that they were in. One of the big things too is aftercare planning, and some treatment centers do this better than others, and I think that's a key, is that What Mm -hmm. we want is that aftercare planning technically should start the day the person gets into treatment where we start thinking about what happens after. Now we don't want our clients to necessarily be focusing on it because we need them focused on the present. But as a staff, we're thinking about who are they are and where they're going to go home to and what kind of situation is that? And do they have a job and what about children, et cetera, et cetera? Because what we're doing is sort of, helping them and then giving them skills in this closed environment. But when they get out on the outs, so to speak, nothing's changed out here. And that is often very jarring for folks and they need assistance. And so nobody should be leaving treatment and have nothing planned. Like there should be a plan in place for medical, mental health, uh, recovery planning, for like whether they're going to go to support groups or whatever it is. So all these aspects of a person's life that we have a plan for that. And that is something that's gonna that should be happening in a treatment center as someone's getting close to discharge.
0: I love that. You know, anybody coming into treatment should be able to think about a lot of the stuff you said and then ask those types of questions. Obviously, a lot of times people coming in for treatment aren't, really in the state to ask that, but like even mm-hmm. as a parent, yeah, you want to have that that good assessment. I know for me, we do those types, or for our place, our center, the Life Change Center, we do those assessments as well because, you know, like you were talking about, it's different for everybody. Some people are experiencing homelessness, so that's going to be a different risk factor where some people have some psychological disorders, so they need to be referred out to maybe deal with schizophrenia or anxiety or some mental health. So that's going to be sort of a different type of assessment. And then like you said, you kind of talk about it and figure out what level of care they should be involved in. So yeah, so just making sure that, you know, an individual is getting a good assessment is a very good um, clue (laughs) that you're dealing with a good treatment program. So, Betsy, when we're doing an assessment, we're also assessing for co-occurring disorders, which, for those of you that don't know, that that there are different mental health challenges that commonly occur with substance use disorder or, you know, people struggling with addiction. So... Talk to me briefly about that, about assessing someone for a co-occurring disorder, A, what that is, B, and which co-occurring disorders, mental health challenges do you see that commonly co-occur with people that struggle with addictions? When we're talking about co-occurring
1: disorders, what's difficult in the beginning is that we need to know, is this the substance is this caused by the substance only? Is it going to be there when we take it away? Was it predating the substance use? And what's what's going to be the future with this thing? So, for instance, let me just we'll just go with an mm-hmm. example. So, having depression is is a common is a common thing. And so the person when they come in, we're trying to see is the depression being changed by the substance use and the chances are that yes it is it's possible that it is masking it it's possible that it's making it worse and what we're doing is trying to figure out which is belonging to the substance and which is belonging to the person Mm -hmm. in terms of this is their biology when it comes to mental health and that can be kind of challenging to to determine not impossible just challenging and the reason that that's important is that we have to know what the person's going to experience if they give up the substance because living life without drugs or alcohol is super super scary for the non-addict or alcoholic on the outside that seems weird because their life is probably falling apart And on the outside, you're like, why wouldn't they want to let go of this? This thing is clearly the problem. That is not how the person feels. They feel like their life is falling apart. And now is not the time to let go of the only thing that they have, which is the substance. And so it's super scary. I think having someone, the therapist or whomever, having a real understanding of what is going to happen when the person quits using, we have to plan for that because otherwise then we're they're going to relapse and we're going to go back into the beginning of the cycle. And so I think with that co-occurring piece, when you're looking, especially with treatment, some places know how to deal with it and some don't, and they really need to have some kind of plan for that on how mm-hmm. they're going to deal with it because there's way more than just depression Certainly, there are people who have anxiety disorders, panic disorder, PTSD. And then when we're talking about meth, then we're getting into psychosis. And that's not to say that you can't have psychosis with other drugs or late stage alcoholism. But it's so, so common with people who are using meth. And in some cases, the psychosis stays no matter if they're sober or not. And that is is a totally different issue that we have to be able to work on and plan for that that is a possibility and so there's these there's different things that need to happen when we're looking at helping someone get clean because they're in that moment that person is not able to think that far into the future and because when they do think about it that's what keeps them using is they're like yeah no I'm not doing that That sounds terrible. And on our side, on the treatment side, we're thinking, okay, I can kind of predict that this person's been using to manage their PTSD or manage their anxiety. So if we pull away the drugs and alcohol, this person's probably still going to have PTSD and all of the hypervigilance and nightmares and flashbacks, et cetera, et cetera, are likely going to come back. How are we going to deal with that? And so sometimes that's going to be medication and therapy to manage those things. And there has to be treatment that's happening at the same time. And I don't believe that someone has to get totally sober before they address their mental health. I think that both can happen and that it's best when both are integrated in some way whether that's the same therapist or whether that's they're working side by side or they're communicating or whatever. But I do believe that we have to have both of those things in order to set them up for the best recovery that they
0: can. And it it emphasizes the concept of really just having that good assessment and I think also too what you're really saying is you know people do stuff for a reason right And, and we're perceiving a benefit to it. Just like when I was 14 or 15 and 16 and medicating an anxiety disorder, there was a reason I was drinking, obviously. You know, <laughs> I had some fun back then too, but there was there was a reason. I perceived that this was somehow helping my anxiety. Didn't realize at the time that the alcohol was actually making it worse, but just giving up the alcohol and not dealing with the anxiety wouldn't, wouldn't make sense to me. And a lot of times, you know, most people don't know that. And so we're just like, if you, why don't you understand it? if you don't stop, you're going to die. Well, most people know that, you know? And so I think it's it's really what, what as as therapists or counselors is trying to look at, right? Like, why is the person doing what they're doing? What is the perceived benefit? And how can we help them find different ways to to, to cope? Because if you don't have something to replace it with, right, there's a good chance you're not going to be able to stop. And
1: that's the thing is that we can't, pull away the drugs and alcohol without planning for that. I mean, you can, but not real effective.
0: Betsy, talk to me before we close just about your work, what you're doing and how people can get in touch with you. So the work I'm doing now is directed at
1: mental health therapists. So your average therapist who is in, who's doing mental health work and recognizes that There are clients that are using substances and feeling like they don't totally know what to do about that. My hope is to encourage therapists to broaden their horizons to be more aware of substance use. Eventually, I want them to ask more questions and figure and learn how to assess better so that they know what to do about it. And then I want some of them to be willing to work with Clients one to one who don't necessarily need a full blown treatment center, but who Mm -hmm. in their own individual therapy, it can be part of it. Because I don't think we have to be in these major silos. And so I'm providing information through the podcast that I make sure is fact based, current information. And when I have a bias, I will talk about it and let someone know okay, here's where we move into the realm of opinion versus fact and this is why I have this opinion. I have offered workshops throughout the year and then I have my main training course which is a six-week live taught course for therapists because while you can get a substance use license, I you don't need to in order to talk about substance use. Yes, you do need it if you're going to bill under it, if you're going to um, have it as a primary diagnosis or if you're going to be doing substance use assessments in a f- as a formal thing. But to just talk about substance use, you don't need that. And I think that that is the key for more therapists being willing to address it is if they don't have to go back to school, but they just need a little more information. That's what this course is about. It's six weeks, it's 12 hours, and then I have six months of follow-up consultation that we have a consultation call once a month where they can bring up cases and talk with me about it and also access in between, of course, to staff things with me, so to speak, so that they can check in to see, like, am I reading this correctly? Would you ask a different question? Because I really want people to feel confident and competent that they can do this work and that they already have the skills. There isn't one modality that we're saying is the best for substance use. It's all the stuff we already do. We just have to turn it so it's used towards substance use. And I think that therapists are in a place where we get people who are willing to be vulnerable and tell us things This might be the place where they're willing to mention that they're using in order to cope. And I want people to know how to manage that. So that's what my whole podcast is about. The course that I do, the workshops I do to assist with people adding this to their scope of practice because it's hard to know where to start. And I want to provide that for folks. And ultimately, I want us to bring more freedom and healing to our clients to help them move past it. Because I believe in addiction recovery. And I believe that as long as somebody has breath, that there is hope. Yes, so
0: true. Betsy, let people know uh, your website and contact information in case they want to connect with you or take your course um, and things like that. So you can find me at
1: BetsyBiler.com. And that is Betsy with a Y and Byler, byle com, And you can email me at Betsy at BetsyByler.com. And I'm happy to answer questions. You can also on the website check out uh, different things that I've done. And then the podcast, there are, I think I'm at 125 episodes. There's information. And I do have listeners that are parents uh, and and even people in recovery who have listened to certain episodes and so it it's not just it is for therapists and that's my background and my focus but I do know that if that mm-hmm. there is some information that folks have heard and I also have some recovery stories that people enjoy listening to of folks that are uh, in my professional sphere so to speak um, that are in recovery and i uh, I also support all pathways to recovery Uh, and so I am a fan of the 12 steps but also of other plans of recovery and so I will I talk about some of those resources as well so yeah you can find me there.
0: Fantastic. Any parting words of wisdom, advice, suggestions, comments for people or families struggling with addictions? I did do an
1: episode on, uh, on my podcast that was about sort of some do's and don'ts for folks who have loved ones that are using. And it's, it's really practical, but I think it is the start of setting boundaries and limits with people that you love will yeah. be helpful and will decrease the amount of crazy-making behavior that gets into your life. And that will give you more emotional resources for the day they are ready for treatments. Or to stop or to get help or whatever that ends up being. So that when that happens, you're not at your wit's end. And that's all you can do is protect your own emotional energy and life and make sure that you are managing things and living your life as well as being able to enjoy life with the other parts of your family and friends who aren't in that place so that it's not just your loved one that's using, that's getting all of everything that you have. And I, I really can't stress enough, you suffering along with them doesn't change it. It will not make them quit using any faster. And so they also aren't aware all the time. And, and, and uh, they're also not going to have any sense of how much you're suffering and it's achieving nothing. And so don't suffer like that. Try to find a way to minimize that. While you're still going to be worried and still struggle, that's okay. Not saying that it can be perfect. But I don't want you to feel, I don't want people to feel like they don't deserve to be happy or they can't relax while their loved one is using. Because that's going to be a hell of a long several years or however long it is. And you don't need to do it. It won't help. It won't help them and it doesn't help you. And so learning to set those limits and getting some support for yourself, whether it's in therapy or Al-Anon or whatever, or Narcanon or Naranon, sorry. uh, Getting some support for yourself is totally worth it. It is absolutely warranted. And I think it's helpful to have someone to talk to that can understand and help you focus on your goals.
0: Awesome. Betsy, thank you so much. BetsyBiler.com. Check out her website and see all the great work that she does. Betsy, thank you so much for coming on the show, for being vulnerable, for sharing not only your clinical and counseling expertise, but also your personal story as well. Thanks so much for having me, Jody. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at JodyStevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, JodyStevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.